we made it through a couple of weeks in Acts chapter 15, and the focus on there was grace. And this was a very critical, critical point in the church, because uh, the church really stood at the position of either uh, of fluttering out and dying, or of thriving. And at stake was this issue of, are we saved by grace and by grace alone, or are we saved by grace through works? And uh, that was a very critical issue that the church resolved, and thank the Lord they resolved it correctly. We are saved not by works, we are saved entirely by grace, and that not of ourselves. That is a gift of God to us, and it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And so we settled that over the last two weeks, and so now we're at the point where this news is about to be disseminated uh, to many of the churches that had been under this heavy cloud of of works and the law, and we need to be circumcised in order to be true Christians. We need to fulfill the law of Moses in order to be true Christians. And so all of a sudden now, it's like this good news is about to spread. And the book of Proverbs has a great way of summarizing uh, succinctly little truths for us. And there's a couple of Proverbs I want to remind us of. Um, the first is Proverbs 15.30. It says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. I like that. Bones. It could be named that guy. On, is it Star Trek who's named Bones? What a great name, Bones. But good news refreshes the bones. If you had time this afternoon or this week and you wanted to just take a concordance and see the way our bones are impacted by life, it's huge. The Bible has got wisdom that we just need to listen to. And so what he's saying is that deep down in the very structure of our being, good news brings strength. Another verse that we find in Proverbs is, in Proverbs 25, 25, says like, cold water to a thirsty soul is good news from a far country. Many of us have had the opportunity of receiving good news from afar off in various situations and circumstances. Some, it might be waiting for the birth of a grandchild, um, and uh, it might have been waiting for the birth of our own child, and you might have been away, or you might have been out of town, or your, your, your son and daughter might be far away from you, and maybe there's been complications, and you wonder, well, how is this birth going to go, and what's going to happen, and is this baby going to be okay when they're born? And you're sort of anxious, and you're praying, and you're concerned, and then you get the phone call, and it's good news. You know, five fingers, five toes, everything's there. And it's like, ah, oh, you're just refreshed. You know, some of you have had the, the, the difficult circumstances of finding stuff wrong with your body. And you're not sure what's going on. And, and there's something that's just not right. And so you go to the doctor and you go through all these tests and you're anxious and you're heavy and you're weighed down by, by this concern that you have. And all of a sudden the phone rings one day and it's the doctor's office, and out of their mouth comes, good news, the tests are clear. And it's just like you've slugged down a, this gla- a beautiful glass of cold water on a hot summer day. It's just refreshing. And so in the same way, the Gentiles' churches needed some good news. We don't know how long this controversy had been going on, but it seems to have been a significant one because we find that everywhere that Paul went to a synagogue, the Jews followed him, and they hassled him, and they gave him a hard time. We understand that after the, the, the Gentiles became Christians, the Jews came in afterwards and said, well, that's not good enough. You've got to be circumcised or you've got to keep the law. And so everywhere that the gospel had gone amongst the Gentile churches, there was this dark cloud hanging over them, hanging over the leaders, hanging over the churches, hanging over the inter, uh, individuals. And so as this letter is compiled, it is like good news that is going to go out and it's going to refresh the bones of the church. It's going to refresh the souls of the church. And we just get a, a little glimpse of this as this passage is, is book, bookmarked or bookended. Is that what, what do we call them? Bookends? 
bookends. There we go. I think that's right. In verse 30 of chapter 15. So they went off, they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And then listen to this. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That was good news. That was like a a glass of cold water. That was like strength to their bones. And then at uh, chapter 16, verse uh, verse 4, we read there, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Those two passage, passages bookend the, the text that I want to look at today, but it's reminding us that as this news went out, it had the effect of refreshing this congregation. That's the impact of good news. But there's more going on in this text. There's actually a lot going on in this text. And uh, there's something also that is happening as a result of this good news going to the congregation. Yes, they were happy. Yes, they were encouraged. Yes, they were rejoicing. Yes, they were refreshed. But something spiritual was happening amongst these churches and these individuals as well. Because as this um, controversy was now behind them, as it had sort of been settled, the church was now able to grow and flourish and to become stabilized. And in each of these three sections, there's a single word that is mentioned. And it's this word strengthened. In verse uh, 32, it says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers. And then you come to the end of verse um, 41, and it says, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then you come uh, in verse uh, 5 of, of chapter 16, and it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers. If you underline stuff, just underline that word strengthen because I think it's one of the clues or it's certainly one of the ways in which we can understand what's going on in these churches. There's two different words for strengthen being used. The first word strengthen is found in verse 32 and in verse 41. And it's a technical term which is used to mean to establish something or to consolidate something. And so it's like the Luke is telling us and these churches were established. They were made firm. They were consolidated. All the controversy stuff now had gone out of the way, and now they could stabilize. Now they could focus on what really mattered. The fat had been trimmed. The resources were being refocused. The teachers now weren't putting out fires, but they now where they were teaching truth. And so the church was strengthened. And then the, in, at the end of um, verse 5 of chapter 16, it's a different Greek word that's used there. And it's a word that simply means to make strong. It's used one other place in the New Testament in the book of Acts, actually Acts chapter 3. And there's a story there of a man who had been crippled from birth and he was brought to the gate beautiful all the time to gather alms alms, and one day, arms, that makes, no, (laughs) to gather alms. And um, a couple of the apostles were coming by and they said, you know, silver and gold don't we have? We have none of that, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it says as he stood up, his ankles were strengthened. They were made strong. They were made firm. And so as we get a picture of what's going on in this church, as this news is arriving in all of these churches, they are finding stability is now coming. They are finding that they are being made steadfast. They find that they are being made firm. They are just being made strong. And so this good news was having an amazing impact on these churches. 
And as we look at them, and I want to use that word to look at each of those three sections, to look at how the church was strengthened. And the first is simply that the church was strengthened through diverse gifts. This church was strengthened through diverse gifts. I want to read from verse 31 on again um, of chapter 15 to, to verse 35. It says, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they went off in peace by the brothers uh, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas returned in Antioch or remained there teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Do you see the diversity of gifts that are mentioned just in that one passage? Prophets, teachers, and pastors. There was this amazing diversity of gifts that was being used by God to strengthen the church in this particular area. They were being built up in the Word of God. And I think we have here in infancy what Paul would later write in Ephesians, and he would describe it this way. And he gave gifts to the, or gifts to the church, to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful screams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, that's the point of the diversity of gifts, so that we might be made strong, so that we might be built up, so that we might be made stable and secure. And so we find what's happening here is Christ is already giving gifts to these early church in the book of Antioch, gifts of prophets, of teachers, of pastors, of, of preachers, so that they can be made strong and they can be built up. Notice that it is Christ who gave these gifts. In Ephesians, it says, and he gave. Well, who is the he? It is Christ. So I'm just reminding us again that this is his church. And Christ is building his church. And Christ is giving his church what is necessary so that it will be built up and it will be strengthened. It's the ongoing work of Christ in the church. Here we have two, uh, we have an apostle. We have two prophets. We have multiple teachers all with the result that the church is being strengthened. I think it's important for us to just sit here for a moment and think about gifts. There's a lot of texts in the Bible that talk about why Christ has given gifts to the church and what they do in the church. Probably one of the most familiar ones to us is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a good starting place for us to understand the gifts that God has given the church and why he has given them to the church. Verse 7 of chapter 12 is, I think, very helpful in understanding this means. It says, to each one, to everyone who is a believer, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you and I have each received gifts of the Spirit. This is Pentecost Sunday. We're reminding that we have been given gifts of the Spirit for the common good of one another. And it goes on and he says, all these are empowered by the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice together. Paul's point is that we need one another. That we are strengthened when we function as a body. That we are weakened when we try and go it on our own. That is the teaching everywhere in Scripture. There is no such thing as lone range Christians. There is no such things as Christians that will thrive apart from being connected to a body. If I were to cut off my index finger and stick it on my desk at home, it would be utterly useless. It would just sit there. It wouldn't even flop around after a while. Because my finger is attached to my hand. And my hand's attached to my arm. My arm's attached to my body. My body has a head on it with a brain in it most of the time. And it's my brain that tells my finger what to do. And without my finger, my body is handicapped. So it is with each one of us. God has given us gifts that are uniquely important for this body here. And we use our gifts for the strengthening of the body. Romans 12, 3 to 8 is another passage that talks about gifts. And it says, therefore, as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. We all are unique. We all have our role and our place. All members don't have the same function. And so though we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We need one another. We thrive when we are connected with one another. We are strengthened when we use our gifts to serve one another for the common good. Peter also lists a number of gifts in 1 Peter chapter 4. And here's what he says in a nutshell. Each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another in order that in everything God may be glorified. So when you have a gift, it's not for your own selfish purposes. It's so that you might serve the body of Christ. And ultimately, we serve so that God might be glorified. And so we see that that is how the church is strengthened. And so in Antioch, we have that taking place. I want to say something here about the gift of prophecy. I don't want to just ignore some of these things that sometimes we just read over. And, and I understand that I may be getting myself into a little bit of hot water as I do this, but we can't ignore it. It says, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the church. In saying something about prophets and prophecies, I risk a number of things. I risk saying both too much and not enough. And what I want you to do is just Listen carefully to the Word of God. Listen carefully to some of the things that I say. And then go and search the Scriptures for yourself. I'm probably uh, in a little bit of difficulty too. Because I am not a cessationist. You think, well, what in the world is a cessationist? Well, a cessationist is one who believes that many of the gifts of the New Testament have ceased to function in the church today. There are great men and women of great traditions, and with much greater intellect than I, who when they come to the Scriptures, their conclusion is that the gifts have ceased. They believe that many of the sign gifts, particularly, died out with the apostles because they were gifts that were only given to the apostles. And once the apostolic era ended, so those sign gifts ended. I don't see Scripture that way. And while I may have some trouble explaining things, I believe a cessationist has trouble explaining things as well. How do you explain the work of God that is taking place amongst the Latin Americans in North America where the the, the gifts of God are just like thriving in the state? Some of you might have read that article in Time magazine about three, four weeks ago. 
What about the churches in China and in Asia, the churches in, in Africa, the churches in South America that, that are seeing the demonstration of these gifts on a regular basis in their congregations? How do we explain that? For me, I explain it because Christ is still building his church. The church has not ceased to be built yet. And so he is still giving gifts to his church to build up the church and to strengthen the church. When it comes to prophecies and prophets, again, I, I'm just going to dump some stuff on you. I, I can't explain it all today, but take me out for lunch or I can take you for lunch if you want to talk a little bit. Maybe coffee because I'll get heavy if I go for too many lunches. But when I look at the gift lists that are in the New Testament, I find that it always seems to start with apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. That immediately tells me something that, that maybe what is being referred to as prophets in a different sense from the Old Testament. And I think that we need to begin to wrap ourselves around that. Um, that, that maybe what we are talking about in the New Testament with prophets and prophecy is a little bit different than what we are talking about with prophets and prophecy in the Old Testament. Secondly, the fact that Paul tells the Thessalonian churches to not despise prophetic utterances tells me something. It tells me that prophetic utterances were still part of the church, and it tells me that some had trouble with them and wouldn't understand them or didn't want to listen to them, and they, and they were despising them. They were ignoring them. They were rejecting them. He says, don't despise them. And a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul would say there that we need to be careful to judge prophecies. Now that tells me that there's a little bit difference between New Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophecy. Because in Old Testament prophecy, you only had one option. If you spoke a word as a prophet and you were wrong, that was the last word that you spoke. Because God says, if you are a false prophet, you need to be stoned. In the New Testament, prophets are not stoned if they are wrong, but they are judged. Their words are assessed. You aren't to despise their words. You are to to judge them amongst yourselves and see if what they say is true or correct. And so it tells me that there's something different going on between prophecy in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament. I still have troubles too when I think about Acts chapter 2 verse 17 as Peter is describing what happened on the day of Pentecost. He says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall see dreams. Even on my servants, the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. What are the last days, beloved? We've been talking about the last days in light of the Lord's return. And the last days are the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. As far as I know, Christ has not come back again. And so it seems to me that the gift of prophecy is for this church age today. And so he says, he explains that what happened in Pentecost as this is an opportunity for the spirit to work. We looked at Acts chapter 13 a while ago where it says that in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. It was just normal for that to be in the church. Now, I've said a lot already, but let me say a little bit more. The function of prophecy. This sometimes concerns us and we get a little bit squirmy with the function of prophecy. I think Paul very clearly outlines what the function of prophecy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. This is, for me, the, just the, the, test, the, the test of all prophecy. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people 
for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their comfort. The, the, the one who prophesies speaks to the church, speaks to the people of God so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be built up, so that we might be consoled by the word of God. And it's important that we understand this word built up because it is used three times in 1 Corinthians 14. It was used two times in the passage I read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 following. That the, the purpose of these gifts that God has given to us is that we might be built up. So that we might be strengthened. So that we might be stable. So that we might be steadfast. And so prophecy is one of the ways in which God, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through prophecy, builds us up. The next verse of 1 Corinthians 14 says this. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So prophecy is a gift that God has given for the building up of the church. Now there's a few things that I, that I feel compelled to say strongly. First of all, prophecy and prophesying is not a private function. I am extremely concerned, and in fact, I keep my distance from any who claims to have the gift of prophecy and opens up an office somewhere and says, come to me and I will prophesy what God is going to do in your life. That for me is nothing but fortune telling. It's nothing but, 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 but opening the, the door for, for disaster in your life. I don't find in the scripture where prophets open up shop and have people come in and either for free or money, try and predict the future for that individual or what God is going to do in their life. Prophecy is not about fortune-telling. Prophecy is about forth-telling. Prophecy is about um, speaking the Word of God in, a, in, a, in an amazing way into a, in a church's life or into uh, the body of Christ's life. And so I'm very concerned when those sort of things happen. Secondly, I have never allowed people to speak in the first person when they prophesy. I'm very troubled by that when somebody comes along and says, well, the Lord has told me, or thus says the Lord, or the Lord God has said. I just, I just back up in that when, when that happens. And I back up because I have no authority to judge that then. How do I judge God? If somebody says to me, the Lord has told me, then I'm arguing with God. And I'm not about to argue with God. And so I'm very concerned when people use that kind of a language. Sometimes they lose it, use it not knowing that they're using it. Other times they use it on purpose as a way of power and control. As far as I'm concerned, the best way to speak about what you believe God is saying to you is to say, you know, I was in prayer this week and the Spirit of God was really impressing upon me this application of Scripture. Or when you're in, in, a, in your discipleship group together and you're praying and, and you say, you know, I really, I really feel that God is wanting us to pray about this need or about this circumstance or this situation. And so you allow people to enter into that and to assess it and to judge it with you and to talk about it with you. It's, it's much like they did at the Jerusalem Council. It says, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them. How did they come up with it? They came up with it because they were reading the Word of God together. They were praying the Word of God together. When the disciples were up in the, in the upper room and they were waiting for Pentecost and they were praying, it says they were reading and they were praying Scripture. How did they know that they needed to replace Judas? Because I think God, through His Holy Spirit, led them to think about certain Scriptures and read the Scriptures. And as they read the Scriptures, it's like a light went on and they said, we need to replace Judas. 
There needs to be 12 of us. And so as they worked through scriptures, they prayed. God led them and God helped them to understand what he was trying to say. So I'm concerned when people use phrases and languages like the Lord told me. Um, or God has this to say. When we talk about prophecy, it says for edification, for encouragement and consolation. That is what you and I are to do all the time. Just as people of God, we are to speak words of encouragement, edification and consolation. You find that in scripture everywhere. But how does that apply to prophecy? Well, I think it applies to prophecy in this way, that that sometimes God gives unique insight revelation that is beyond normal conversation and observation. And he gives us a glimpse into somebody's heart. He gives us a glimpse into a situation that's going on. And we just say, you know, as I've been thinking and talking, I wonder if this is something you should do. or I wonder if this is something you should think about. And it's like you have just you've just spoken truth. I remember uh, at a church that I was at out for lunch with an individual. And uh, as I was sitting out for lunch with the individual, I'd gone out with this individual for a specific reason. And as we were sitting around for lunch, finally, and the conversation was, was, was happening, I finally said to the individual, I said, you're having an affair, aren't you? And it wasn't that it just popped into my mind. I had been praying and watching this individual for months. And their lifestyle and their habits led me to finally speak what I believed I needed to speak in that situation. They denied it, and two weeks later, they left their spouse. I, that, that's not saying anything wonderful and don't be afraid to go out for lunch with me. <laughs> but what, I, what I'm saying is it's just, it's, this, it's, it's this, the way that God just gives you insight that is beyond natural observation. It's not something spooky or eerie or weird. It's just the Holy Spirit giving insight into an individual's life. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand or recall to mind or apply Scripture in a unique way, in a unique situation. And so I wanted to just give you that glimpse because I don't want to just gloss over this. It says Judas and Silas were prophets. And I think as they came in, they were just mightily gifted by God to speak to the hearts of the people, to speak the Word of God and apply the Word of God in a way that was a balm to their soul, a way that was encouragement to them so that they were strengthened. And so again, from that particular section of Scripture, we see the diversity of gifts that Christ gave to the church operating as they had prophets, as they had teachers, as they had um, uh, pastors, as they were preaching and teaching. What a wonderful way through which the church was strengthened. The second thing I want us to look at is the next chunk of Scripture from verses 36 to verse 41. The church was strengthened through division. The church was strengthened through division. Don't squirm. Don't get uneasy. You did hear me correctly. This church was strengthened through division. It was likely around the winter of A.D. 4950. Paul had a great idea. Barnabas, he says, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. What a, what a great idea. What, what, that's the right thing to do. They had seen many people come to faith in Christ. You can't just leave them floundering on themselves. And so Paul said to Barnabas, we need to go back and we need to see how they're doing. And we need to teach them the scripture and we need to see them grow in their faith. But there was a slight hiccup. Verse 37 and 38 says, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. 
and had not gone with them, gone on with them in the work. Paul's a little bit concerned. I don't know about this young man. We had some trouble with him, and I don't know if we can trust him down the road. And then it gets decidedly worse. Look at verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement, and they separated from each other. The result, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Our tendency when we look at a passage like this is to gloss over it. The honesty of Luke sometimes is unsettling to us. We don't like the truthfulness of Scripture. Sometimes the truth about ourselves is not what we want to hear. When I was writing this, I was thinking of that Jack Nicholson movie. can't remember the title. But he says, you can't handle the truth. Sometimes we can't handle the truth. And sometimes Scripture reminds us of those things that we need to hear. We want to hide our imperfections. It's uncomfortable for us and uneasy for us to acknowledge that we have division, to acknowledge that we can't resolve our differences. It doesn't fit our picture of what the church should be like. We want the world to see a church that is all happy and wonderful and and never has any problems. But we come to a passage like this and we find division. We find an inability to resolve difficulties. We don't always resolve them well. Sometimes we don't resolve our difficulties because of our own sinfulness. Sometimes we can't resolve them because of the own stubbornness of our hearts. Sometimes it's because there is an inability within us to compromise. Sometimes it is because there's an inability to see things the same way as others do. So we have that going on here. We have this this situation in which this missions trip had started off in Pamphylia and something had gone wrong. Something had happened and John Mark had, had, had freaked out. He had He got uncomfortable and he said, I can't do this. This isn't for me. I'm scared of this stuff. And he left. He left this missions team one man down. Paul put his his foot down and said, I'm not having this guy back. The passage doesn't explicitly tell us who was right or who was wrong. I think there are some clues, but I don't think that's the point of the passage. It doesn't tell us who was right and who was wrong. And I suspect the picture was a little bit complicated by the fact that John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And sometimes family has a way of clouding the issues that maybe aren't normally issues. But nonetheless, uh, uh, Barnabas was related to John Mark. But Barnabas and Paul had this beautiful relationship. They had a deep, deep friendship. Barnabas, after all, was the one I was reading this this morning in my devotions. Barnabas was the one who, when Paul had first become a Christian, and none of the other Christians wanted anything to do with him, Barnabas brought him to Jerusalem, introduced him to the brothers, and said, listen, Paul's okay. Paul's on our side. God has changed him. And he introduced him to the church, and and Paul spoke mightily in Jerusalem, and he was loved by the, by the Christians in Jerusalem. And then Barnabas and Paul set out together on this wonderful ministry to the Gentiles. And they shared boats together. They shared goats together. They shared all kinds of stuff together as they traveled from one city to the next city. And they just, I'm sure they grew into just this amazing friendship with one another. A beautiful friendship. They were fellow soldiers in the faith. They were heroes of the faith. We look at Barnabas, son of encouragement. 
We all say, I want a Barnabas in my life. And we look at Paul, this intellect that was just like, boom. You were heroes of the faith. They were great men of God in the early church. And here we are in the midst of this monumental missionary journey. The Holy Spirit is beginning to expand the good news of the gospel outside of Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria. And it was going to the ends of the earth. And there was, there was on the verge of incredible blessing of God. And there arose this sharp disagreement. And they went their separate ways. If these men had trouble... Doesn't it indicate that maybe from time to time we might have trouble as well? It bears mentioning that as the years go by, we see John Mark develop into a brilliant and amazing young man. We find him with a significant association with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. This is the same John Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark that many of us love and have read many times. It's the simplest of the Gospels, I think. It's the same John Mark who later was recognized by Paul for his worth in the ministry. There had been maturity. There had been development. There had been growth in John Mark. And it's probably worth pointing out at this point that early errors in our life do not eliminate us from effective ministry later in our life. We need to grasp that and wrap our head around that. I was thinking of Jonah. Jonah, the prophet, called by God to go to the Ninevites with the, with the message of repentance. And you know what Jonah did. He said, no way to God. Hopped on a ship and decided to go as far away from God as he could possibly get. But one of the best verses in the book of Jonah, and there's lots of them, is Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of God came to him a second time. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the grace of God? Isn't that a great reminder to us that that our effectiveness in service and ministry for the God is not negated by foolish and wrong decisions that we make earlier in our walk with God. We find that in the life of Peter. Peter, of all people, knew this. Peter had denied our Lord and Savior. I don't know him. In fact, he had got so angry, he had sworn and said, I don't know that guy. A little bit later, he had been fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and some of his Jewish buddies come along and said, you shouldn't be eating with those guys. They eat bad stuff. And he pulled away and he wouldn't talk with them any longer. And yet we see Peter grow and become an effective minister in the church and to write two of the books that we read in the Bible constantly. Loved ones, if our mistakes eliminated us from effective ministry to God down the road, would any of us be able to serve and minister in the kingdom of God? I'm so thankful that early errors, early errors in our life do not eliminate us from effective ministry down the road. But all that was to come in time with John Mark. When they were about to begin this second missionary journey to Europe, there arose such a sharp disagreement with Paul and Barnabas that they went their separate ways. As some of you know, this past year has been a difficult one for us in our church. It has strained great relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. There has been sharp disagreement. And yes, some have gone their separate ways. I don't understand all of it. It's not been a pleasant experience for myself, for our church leaders, for you who have been associated and have deep friendships in this situation. But I know that God has not been caught off guard. I know that God is 
troubled by what has happened, but I know God has not been caught off guard. And if there's something that we can take away from this, I think it might be this, that God is able to accomplish his purposes through our imperfections and, yes, sometimes even through our sin. I've been rereading a little book, and you can actually find this whole book online. It's a book by John Piper called Spectacular Sins. And it's a beautiful biblical picture of the sovereignty of God, how God works even through the sinfulness of mankind. How God can work through the fall of Satan. How God can work through the murder of his son, Jesus Christ. How God can work through the cruelty shown to Joseph. And in fact, still one of my favorite verses in Scripture is that one in Genesis where Joseph's brothers are standing before him, trembling, knees knocking, because they finally recognized who he is. And he looks at them, and with greatest sincerity of heart, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I don't know the ways of God, loved ones, but I do know that God has an amazing ability to work out his plans and purposes in spite of our obstinacy and the hardness of our heart and our sinfulness. As we come back to the text then, we find that the church was strengthened through division. The church was strengthened through division. This is an example of God's providence. It's no excuse for us to be tolerant of division. It's certainly not a way for us to say, well, if God can work through division, then what's the big deal? Let's just divide. No, division is still wrong. Division is not God's heart for us. But God is still able to work for it. And I think this often, that God is able to stop division. But if he doesn't, then there must be a reason that he allows it. The most obvious one in this particular text is that now there are two missions teams when there was one. Twice as much ground was now being covered. Twice as many people were involved in going back to the churches and strengthening them in the Lord. God's work was multiplied. And as I see it at this moment, and I'm being honest, the difficulties of this past year are still raw. The wounds and the pains and the hurts are just below the surface still. But today there is another church and there is another ministry. More ground is able to be covered. And is it not just possible that maybe the church will be strengthened through division? One wrote, what resulted was a solution that allowed the advance of the gospel to continue. But in a way that recognized a need for distinct ministries. Sometimes this is the best solution. So as we look back then on this particular passage, we realize that Paul came to value Mark in such a great way. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And writing to Timothy, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for the ministry. I pray that over the years that God will restore relationships that have been harmed and hurts that have been created by the sharp disagreement and the division that took place in this place over the last months. Loved ones, God is able to bring about stunning good from our hard-heartedness. And if God is able to bring out our salvation through the murder of his son, 
what good may God be able to bring yet from division that has happened in our midst? The third thing that I see from this passage is the church was strengthened through discipleship. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way to the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. A church was strengthened through discipleship. It's stunning to me the courage of Paul. It says, Paul came back to Derby and Lystra. Do you know what happened in Derby and Lystra? That's where Paul was so severely beaten and dragged out of the city and stoned, he was left for dead. And here he is, months, maybe a year and a half later, coming back to the same place that he had received such hurt and pain. But Luke doesn't say that Paul returned to the place that he was almost killed. He says, Paul returned to the place and there was Timothy who was a disciple. I can't prove this, but I think it is very likely that Timothy came to faith during that time that Paul was speaking in the synagogues there. That as Paul explained the gospel that his mother and grandmother had taught him that all of a sudden the penny dropped in Timothy's heart and mind and he said, I get it. I need Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he became a follower of Christ. Amazing thing, it says that Timothy at a young age, and he was a young man at this point, already was gaining a good reputation. It said he was spoken well in a few cities around there that something must have been going on in this young man and people recognized him, the hand of God upon his life. And Paul would write later about him that he had a sincere faith. And so Paul said, I want that man on my ministry team. And he pulled him along and they went to all these cities with the letter that was going ahead of, or that they were taking with them. I want to just mention this about this. Um, I think there's something for us to learn in this particular passage, in this um, illustration of Timothy. And there's lots I wanted to say. And some of you may be confused about the fact that Paul took him and circumcised him when in chapter 15 we just realized that circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation. Again, take me for lunch and we'll talk about that. Um, Or at the door, whatever. Send me an email and we'll talk. But um, I want to just say this part. There's a wonderful attitude and principle that's reflected in these five verses of chapter 16. And it's this attitude and principle that young people have purpose and use in the ministry. That Paul and Silas saw value in Timothy, even though he was a young man, and said, we want this guy on our team. As we think about our own particular church here, PFBC, one of the things I am so thankful for is that we are a multi-generational church, that we have a church made up of young and old. But sometimes there's a danger as we get older that we want to hang on to things and that we want to hold the reins of ministry and power and influence. I really believe it's so important that we keep looking around us and seeing who is God raising up in our midst. Who are the young men and young women amongst us who, who, who God has gifted for unique ministry or for just ministry in our church. They need to come onto our committees. They need to come on our deacons board. They need to come on our elders board. They need to be those that take over from us. 
What a wonderful gift it is to see the hand of God at work in the life of a young person, to recognize that, to bring them along, and then see them grow and flourish as they walk with God and as they serve the church. If we don't do that, this church is going to become extinct because all of us who are in leadership now are going to die one day. And if we haven't acknowledged the usefulness and the gifting of young people, what will be left? The church is strengthened through discipleship. May God give us eyes and ears and an ability to see those that God has placed his hand upon. And so from this text, we see that the church was strengthened through diverse gifts. We see that the church was strengthened through division. And we see that the church is strengthened through discipleship. May this be the case in this place in the weeks and the months ahead.